welcome to the Crosstalk Podcast, the podcast that brings together fitness and healthcare professionals to discuss topics that will help you become your best and healthiest version of yourself. I'm your host, Nate Reynolds, a physical therapist that specializes in orthopedics and CrossFit from beautiful upstate New York. Welcome to this week's episode of the Crosstalk Podcast. I am with Dave Finkelstein. He is a physical therapist in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and our topic today is going to be about developing better communication techniques to build better rapport with patients. So welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me, Nate. Yeah, so give us a little bit more about your background, kind of where you're from, where you've been, what you're doing right now. Sure, absolutely. So I'm from uh, Long Island, New York, a town called Limbrook. I went to Stony Brook University for physical therapy school. From there, I went to Austin, Texas to pursue my orthopedic clinical specialty through a, a residency program through, the, through Evidence in Motion. Loved it. Really, really great program. Highly recommend it. Then I made my way to Los Angeles where my wife achieved her neurological clinical specialty through the uh, University of Southern California. She loved all the sleepless nights and articles I was reading. She's like, hey, I really want to do that too. So she uh, ended up doing that as well. And then we ended up going back to the East Coast, now working for Virginia Hospital Center in Arlington, Virginia. Yeah, so you've pretty much been all over. You know, you've been in the South, out West, now you're back East. So I, I feel like you have a lot of valuable input just because in my experience, I did clinical rotations in Boston and South Carolina. And, you know, the more places that you, you go, the more, uh, the different treatment philosophies and different ways of looking at things. So just to get things going, talking about communication, you know, why do you think this is an, an important topic that is often overlooked? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So I think we know as clinicians that the most information that we're going to get from our patient in terms of what's going on is going to come from the subjective. You know, I think it's starting to be a little better known that uh, that's where information is going to come from. And we kind of refine our hypotheses with the objective. And then we kind of test it through uh, various uh, trial treatments. But right now, in terms of like continuing education, even in, in my experience with PT school, I wish I, we had uh, dove more into learning more about different communication techniques in terms of building rapport, how to actually know um, if the patient is really getting the message that's coming across or not. So I think it would be really great to kind of connect with a physical therapy audience and even you know, everyone else, patients alike, to really start to develop more communication techniques or even identify certain communication techniques that people are using now and see how we can refine it to really get better rapport, get better information, and really help our, our patients along their journey to recovery. That's a great point. And I think one thing that makes communication, especially in healthcare, hard is that for most, most people, you know, healthcare is a foreign language to them. You know, they're not proficient in understanding exactly what's going on. And so they, you really have to build rapport and trust. Uh, I think sometimes people blindly trust their healthcare providers and they kind of like shake their head, like, yeah, I understand, uh, but they really don't. And so I think, you know, to your point, you know, we really have to simplify and kind of spend more time in the subjective and, and kind of explain what we, what we're finding, uh, what we're going to do and build a better rapport. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think are some important tips for developing like effective communication? Yeah, so I definitely want to establish first off that there's no way that I'm going to be able to cover all the different kind of communication styles, tips on improving, but at least a few uh, communication snacks, if you will, to try to really take into the clinic or just even start discussing with your loved one later on today. So that way we can all become a little bit better at communicators. So some of the things that I want to touch upon and, and talk about is just making sure that you have the general knowledge when you are talking to a patient, really work on developing trust, developing empathy, and then the importance of, of listening. So the first thing that I, I really want to jump into is really having that general knowledge. So please don't lie to your patient when you know, you're really trying to formulate a hypothesis and what's going on. Let's say you're doing you know, XYZ tests and like things really aren't adding up, or you really think that, you know, it's this particular tissue, despite the evidence showing that we don't really have great evidence in terms of like imaging and specific tests connecting to certain tissues, especially in the shoulder, especially in the back. So, you know, if you're telling your patient like, hey, I really think it's this disc that's like pressing up on this nerve, or, you know, it's definitely like this specific muscle with a rotator cuff because of uh, a positive like hawkins Kennedy um, test, you know, that's not necessarily like you trying to fabricate anything, but it's just that that's not quite what the evidence is showing us. So something that we can do first off is really diving into the, you know, your anatomy book, your literature, knowing exactly like, what tests mean one thing or what particular uh, structure can actually really relate to, to what that patient's feeling. And if you don't know, like, please just be brutally honest with, with people, people, especially myself starting off uh, was afraid of that kind of vulnerability piece of not seeming like I know the answer or have the exact answer, but um, being kind of brutally honest with the patient and tell them, Hey, Barbara, you know, I know that you know, you're really hurting from this. A few of these different movements really recreated your symptoms. You know, there's a lot of structures going on, a lot of structures in your shoulder. But I know that you know, raising your arm in this way, lifting in that particular way really recreates your symptoms. We tried a few of these things and, and you actually felt a little bit better from that. So even though we don't know the specific tissue that's really creating that, I'm really confident that if you follow along this program, you're going to feel a lot better. So in that way, we're really being honest with our patient, knowing that you know, even though we don't know the specific structure, we know the course of action that we're going to take. And I think it really develops that, that trust with that patient. Yeah. And I also think that talking about trust, also knowing like when to kind of just be upfront and say, okay, this is something I haven't seen before. I may not understand this, but I'm going to find someone that, that does, or I'll get you in the right direction. Like I had a patient that had a tremor and She's like, yeah, I keep getting these tremors, keep getting these tremors. And then one day she had it in the clinic and you normally think of like, you know, the rolling pills like that, but she's literally like shaking her hand like this going back and forth. And I'm like, I was like, I, I've never seen that before. I took a picture. I took a video of it. I sent it to, I was like, do you mind if I send this to some of my friends that, you know, work or that are neurospecialists? And, and it was the first time that she was diagnosed with like uh, functional neurologic disorder, FND. And it's a, it's a software issue. It's not a hardware issue, meaning that, you know, it, it's how her brain interprets things. 
and that was, and she went and got sent to therapy and, and, you know, all of a sudden she actually had treatment for it and her symptoms went away and it was all stress related. And so I think the build on what you said, like, you know, it's not just knowing when you don't know like what tissue or that it's also just knowing when you don't know, or haven't seen something before. And you're like, I will find a way to get you answers, even if I don't know right now and asking someone else. Yeah, and I bet you because of that need that you develop that rapport that much more because that patient knew that, you know, even though, you know, we don't have all the answers right now, I am confident that my therapist is going to do all they can to, to really find that answer, as opposed to that person that when you don't know something and then you're starting to stumble over your words and then you're just kind of making up certain things, the patient knows you, you feel like you might've outsmarted them, but they, you haven't. Exactly. Um, so in, in that, in terms of uh, kind of developing that trust, that kind of segues me to kind of that second tip that I want to talk about, and it's developing trust. So there are certain things that you really can do to increase trust with that patient. So definitely building rapport, right? That, that goes without saying. That's one of those things that everyone tells you. It's like definitely build rapport. That helps increase therapeutic alliance with your patient. There's a lot of literature showing that the more therapeutic alliance that you have, better the outcomes. So really using non-task communication. So really it's just more of like talking about certain things like sports, you know, the weather, anything that's not particularly related or specific to their diagnosis. So, you know, if you're doing certain manual or if you're doing, you know, just the warm up before the, the, the exercise or workout, if you will, um, really just kind of engaging in that particular conversation, um, calling the patient by name. Um, that goes a long way. I, I couldn't tell you how many times early in my career that I was just so focused on getting the person better that week three or week four, I was like, I really don't know this person's name. I mean, I, I know them like on my schedule. I know that they're coming at, at 1230. I know it's, it's shoulder at 1230. And that really wasn't doing the, the patient a, a service, but really calling people by their name and have them calling me by my name. Like it, I have to look at the exact quote, but I know it's from, it's from the, that book, uh, 12 ways to, uh, win people to your thinking. What what's that book, Nate? Oh, okay. Yeah. I got Dale, it. Dale Carnegie, how, yeah, to, how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. So one of the quotes that he has in there is like, remembering people's names and it, the quote is something along the, line, along the lines of the sweetest sound a person can hear is like their own name or, or something along those lines because it really lets that person know that you know you're talking to them or you know their name like the first thing I did at my job when I moved to Arlington was know everyone's name call them by name every day give them a wave and say you know like hey hey Giovanna hey Tiffany and it I think it really helped them start to know that I valued who they were and, you know, I want to take the time to, to know who they were. So that's, that's rapport, um, warmth, warmth, you know, sharing personal stories, concerns, kindness. If your patient comes in and they're like pretty down in the dumps or they're not really, you know, feeling up to doing that warm up, and you could like really kind of start to detect that kind of asking them a little bit more like unpacking the, like, Hey, what's going on? Is there something, that's bothering you is there something that you want to talk about before we get started because it really shows that you're treating them more than their diagnosis or treating them more than you know uh, another 
patient of that day, but they're an actual human being. So that really starts to increase that, that trust with them. And then the last thing is um, equality. So demonstrating to them that you're treating them as an equal. So if you really value their time, making sure that you're taking them exactly back at 1230, if your schedule allows it, really ma maintaining eye contact, calling them by the name that they want to be called, not just assuming that they like to be called a certain name. So something I like to ask is like, hey, you know, uh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, do you prefer to be called this or your first name? Just because I want to really want to make sure I'm calling you by the name that you want. So really establishing a quality in that sense. So those, those three things are at least uh, a good place to start off in developing trust. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I really try to do and show, I think it makes a difference is like, I, I really want to show that I'm like generally interested in the person. And, you know, that might be knowing like either what they're doing, like in, in their career wise uh, and just trying to figure out like, you know, what made them do that and just try to find one way that I can connect really deeply with. And so it just turns out right now, like I have a lot of nurses or I have, you know, teachers and, you know, and one of the conversations that I always bring up is, you know, we, we kind of talk about, the pandemic and, and just trying to say like, Oh, like it must be really hard what you're doing and, and try to show that I understand the stress of their job. And that way it shows that I'm interested in them, in them as a person. And that I know that they're, they have a lot of stressors outside of just, you know, their shoulder hurting. And then when you talk about equality, I think one thing that I've learned and Dave and I know each other from working at or volunteering at empower spinal cord injury. And one of the things I've always done now is that if someone's sitting in a chair, I get eye level with them. And it's just showing that we're on an even playing field because I don't, I don't want to talk to someone and look down on them. And I think just being eye level with them, it just makes the conversation much more easy and more comfortable. And that's not just for someone that has a spinal cord injury. It's just for anyone, you know, you, you always want to be uh, at their level. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And even in the clinic too, um, some things that I see is like, I, I totally understand. And I know I'm going to get flack for this when I say this, but when you're behind a computer and you're like trying to have a conversation with someone and you're like looking over the laptop or looking around the corner, like, I know you want to get home on time. I know that you have to document because we have a limited amount of time. But even if you just take a few extra seconds it, during this objective and just like, asking the person like, Hey, is it okay if I uh, take a few notes? Cause I really, really value your time. And I value the words that you're saying. Um, I just really want to make sure that I'm putting it down on these notes. So that way I can give you the best care possible as opposed to starting typing and just start going, you know, even at that point, you're really telling the person, Oh, okay. But they're not just typing or they're not just taking the note. They're doing this for a particular reason. Yeah. yeah. You know what I, you know what I do? Uh, first thing uh, I try to do it. First thing is that, you know, in my subjective, because my notes carry over from the previous day, is that I have functional limitation section that I put in the subjective where it's like three or four things that they told me. And so I, I talk back mm -hmm. to them. I'm like, all right, so the last time you said this, uh, has that improved what, what's going on? And then it shows that like, I'm actually intently listening uh, each session, but also I can be like, yeah, like you are getting better. Your pain was a seven out of 10. Now it's a five. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize that. And they're like, yeah. It was like, yeah, you're getting better. And so it can build rapport that way just by showing those small improvements and taking quality notes in your subjective section uh, and just being able to read it back to them. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's 
a lot. Well, in terms of really establishing those, those goals, I think having it that specific to the patient and having it that salient, you know, that bike rider that wants to get back to, um, <laughs> I'm not a bike rider, so I can tell you <laughs> like uh, normal distances, but uh, that was a bad example. So let's say, you know, a runner that wants to get back to <laughs> a 5k or, uh, you know, a marathon or uh, an Ironman, something along those lines and really making the goal specific to them, you know, asking like, Hey, running this far really bothered you. How, how much better, how much worse that is. That just really, uh, just to reiterate what you said and how important that is really makes just everything in terms of like the treatments that you're focusing on the, the reasoning behind, like why that person is coming in, how much value their time it's just really demonstrated to the the patient. So yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. And I think that transitions well to your next topic of, you know, talking about empathy and listening and showing the patient that you, that you care. Yeah, for sure. So definitely developing empathy. And I think this is also a point at which people start to feel a little bit more vulnerable, which now, if you guys know the, or you, you and your listeners know the name, um, Brene Brown, like, you know, vulnerability is her, her big thing. And I think that also goes a, a long way when it comes to developing empathy. So really understanding your particular emotional state, if you will. So some of the things in terms of kind of developing your uh, emotional awareness is self-awareness first off is like really understanding if you know how you're how you're feeling in that particular moment so if i'm talking to a patient i'm really confused and i am like really afraid that they're gonna have no idea why i'm giving exercise and all these things i may be like clenching my fists and i may be like pursing my lips and how well am i able to detect that how how well am i able to see how I'm reacting at that time. Can the patient see that I'm afraid? Can the patient see that, you know, I'm really happy when they're getting better, things like that really dives into self-awareness. And then in that too is self-management. So let's say I do detect that I'm feeling particularly sad, something along those lines. What am I doing that really helps modulate or, or modify how I'm feeling that moment? Am I meditating? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I practicing certain things to really help understand whether or not I'm able to mitigate, you know, my sadness, my anger, my anxiety to provide the patient with, with the best care possible. The third thing about kind of emotional intelligence is social awareness. So how well am I able to detect those kind of things in another person? So when a patient comes to me and they're feeling, you know, they have like tears in their eyes or a better example is let's say I'm walking to work and I see fellow coworkers. She looks like really sad, you know, you know tears going down her eyes. And I say, Hey, Betty, um, you, you're doing okay. And she's like, no, Dave, I'm actually pretty sad. And I say something along the lines of, well, going to work is probably going to get your mind off of that. And then I continue walking. I mean, that's obviously a, a, a gap in my social awareness so in that sense too, like, I have incorrectly recognized that Betty may need something in that, that moment, which then ties into my ability uh, to uh, manage relationships. So in that particular moment, me recognizing that Betty is sad, I can do something along the lines of, you know, really asking her like, 
hey, you know, is there anything I can do or grabbing a tissue and just giving her uh, an ear to listen to. So between self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management, uh, those are four real big components that, you know, clinicians can, can build upon to improve their ability to develop empathy. And that's going to make them have better, a uh, better relationship with the patient uh, in the long run. Yeah. And I don't think that just, you know, working with patients, you know, that applies to, you know, working with people, personal relationships. You know, I think the more that you you're able to be self-aware and have some sense of humility, like know when, you know, you may not be the most pleasant person to work with or be around that day or whether you, you know, you were wrong. And then you quickly admit that in that moment, you know, I may have been wrong, but now at least I'm admitting to you that, you know, you were right. And I understand where you're coming from and, and being a good coworker, a good significant other spouse. Uh, I think that goes a long way. Yeah. A really great book or, or reference that my mentor during my residency gave to me was emotional intelligence 2.0. You know, I, I don't get any sort of commission for advertising this book, but uh, it, it really was great because it gives you, you know, the ability to answer uh, a bunch of questions that dive into the different categories. And it gives you a score on all these different categories. And some of the things that I noticed about myself was that my social awareness and relationship management was pretty good, but my self-awareness and my self-management was not so good to say it <laughs> politely, but in doing so, I was able to really start to recognize certain things about myself, like really like pursing my lips, clenching my fists. And I was getting like frustrated with certain treatments or certain conversations I was even having with, with loved ones. And like people can, can see that. And I think it was actually brought up in conversation with me a few times. And they were like, Hey, like, are you, are you mad at me for a reason? Like, no, I'm so sorry. I'm just mad at myself for not being able to like connect the dots or, and I really thought that that was going to help. And it didn't, I didn't, wouldn't have those necessarily specific conversations with a patient, but it was something along those lines where, you know, my, my self-awareness didn't really, uh, wasn't really up to par. And I think because of that, my, my patients, my friends, my family, they saw that in my particular communication. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, we all probably think like, Oh, like I'm very self-aware, but then as soon as you have someone watching you or recording you, and then you're like, Oh, this is what I actually look like. Like it, it, it humbles you. And you're like, okay, like this is, this is what other people see. And it kind of flips a, a switch in your brain. And because I'm always like, yeah, like, you know, I think I handle feedback really well, but at the same time, I'm like, if it comes from someone that like, maybe I don't necessarily agree with, or, you know, I don't get along with that. Well, I get a little bit more defensive. I can sense that. And I can, I can feel my body tense up and I'm like, I shouldn't be that upset. I should, I should be better at that. And like, I know it later on, but in the moment I'm like, like, who is this person? Like, why are they saying this to me? Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah. And to that point too, I know I, I definitely still exhibit those same feelings, but I, I think to, to what you're saying to, to your credit is kind of afterwards taking a step back and be like, okay, even though it was like, kind of annoying at that time because it's coming from someone that you know I really wouldn't expect that feedback to come come from if I really had to critically think about it like what about my particular personality or what did I say that could could lead to that because I I've noticed that in other people that I, I've talked to and 
they've come up to me and they said like, Dave, I don't understand why, uh, you know, these four patients that I had said that, you know, I'm, I'm really aggressive and I'm, you know, I'm very short with them. And I don't think that, and I, I told them like, well, if you heard that from four people, like, even if it was wrong, even if you're like, no, there's no way that can be really take the time to, to dig apart and, and question like, all right, if there was a tiny percentage that they're right, what about my particular communication style or practice could analyze to modify that a bit just to make sure that, you know, next time it's only three people complaining about me. I say that in jest, but you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I think that, you know, if multiple people are, are giving you that feedback, then you really got to take the time and, and reflect and be like, okay, this is me. And I think sometimes some people play like the, the victim card, either the victim or, or the problem solver, I feel like in certain situations. And I think sometimes people that have more of like a victim mindset are like, okay, but this is about them. Like this, this is something that they're doing wrong, not me. And, you know, I think there takes, there's a, a maturity level that comes with being able to take that feedback and reflect and be like, okay, yes, in the moment that sucked, but they're right. I need to kind of get away from that victim mindset and really take ownership, extreme ownership of every action that I have, even if it's, even if something's indirectly related to me, you know, if you're in a leadership role and it's like a colleague that works underneath you, you know, whatever they do, that still reflects on you and you just got to take ownership of it. I like your kind of quick plug for uh, Jocko Willing's book there, the uh, extreme ownership, but I, I read it too. And, you know, it really made a lot of sense. It, it really does change your mindset from that kind of victim mentality to like, okay, let's actually problem solve this and let, let's see what, what that could be. But I think that also ties into my kind of like last thing that I really want to touch upon was kind of listening. And I feel like that's something that it's really easy to say They're like, yeah, I, I listen. It's like, you might be listening, but like, are you hearing what the person's saying? So I, I think that's, that's kind of like the difference between those two things. And one thing that I, I wish I could emphasize more to people. And one thing I'm still actively trying to get better is just getting comfortable with the silence. So when you ask someone something like trying to your best to not jump and be like, no, 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 what this is actually what's happening in your back or like, no, 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 th th this is why I did that. Because in that sense, you're coming off as almost defensive or aggressive instead of giving the person the opportunity to, to let them know where they're, where you're coming from or where they're coming from rather. And I think it also has really great power when you're trying to make a point with, with someone. So one of the things that I really like to do is when people come to me and they say like, yeah, I have, you know, that bulging disc in my back. It's just jutting out, like crushing my, my nerve and sending signals down my leg. I'm like, oh yeah. All right. Well, let's see what we can do about that. I go through my exam. Um, you know, we'll do some repeated motions or we'll do some, um, some sort of intervention that'll centralize their symptoms. And then it could be as simple as the repeated motion. So let's take that example. If they're doing repeated motions, let's say they have radiculopathy down their leg. They do some, they do 10 press-ups. They stand back up. Their symptoms have centralized a bit. Then they do 10 more press-ups. And then their symptoms centralize even more into the glute. And then 10 more press-ups. And now it's completely gone. And I sit there and I'm like, yeah, that's, so that's kind of weird. So what do you think happened? 
And then I just wait. I just wait it out. I wait for that sweet, sweet taste of, I don't know. What do you think happened? Or can you, can you tell me what happened? Or, you know, if they're like, well, you know, obviously whatever you did worked. And I'm like, yeah. And I guarantee you, it's not me pushing that disc back into your back or something along those lines, because by taking that extra time and not kind of jumping in being like, well, no, 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 we're flushing out the inflammatory chemicals in your back. It gives the person to think what's going on and really start to create those synapses and those connections in their brain. So that way it really makes whatever just happened become that much more important in their lives or they have that much more hope like oh my gosh I don't have to live with this so maybe I can get back to jogging I can get back to lifting I can get back to carrying things a huge point that you made is that you know you can lecture someone and educate someone as much as you want but it's not nearly as powerful as someone making that own connection themselves that's going to stay with them a lot longer than what whatever we tell them yeah. And I think the, the big buzz thing now is motivational interviewing. And I think with that too, it really is important to take those moments to pause, ask the person really open-ended questions. So that way they're coming to those conclusions on their own, because even though at that moment, it might feel good to give that person that whole giant spiel about pain neuroscience. You know, you just learned it from that weekend course. You're like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to bust this out. I'm going to definitely tell this person everything about pain science and, you know, having that little extra time and be like, you know, what do you think is going on? Or you went from an eight to a four by doing this particular activity. Like, what are your thoughts on that? That really gets them thinking that really makes it more salient. Um, it makes your information that much more valuable to them because it's allowing them to be curious about their own care. And at that point, then that's when the education can start because there's a difference between educating someone and talking at someone. And I've seen both and I've done both. And I am very, very confident that teaching someone is more effective than, than talking at people. Yeah. I think we're all guilty of talking at people and definitely talking at patients. You know, I think, and I think a good clinician is someone that can look at themselves in the mirror and be like, that was my fault. I, I should have done this better. I should have done that. And I think if you reflect after kind of like each email, I think you're going to get better at developing rapport a lot quicker. Yeah, for sure. And I do want to even tie this to some literature. So like Bishop in 2013 mm -hmm. talked about uh, patient expectations. So kind of listening to patients, seeing exactly what, what they want have physical therapy, whether they manipulation would help, whether they thought manual therapy would help. And based on that, based on what the patient perceived that would be most beneficial to them, if they receive that particular care, their prognosis or their outcomes in their pain was, wasn't that much more improved or their, their outcomes were better. So if you want to even dive into that article, you can see how powerful listening to your patient and providing them with the care that they think is going to be best for them can really help their outcomes. But I do want to dive into, you know, what are the action steps? What can we do from here to, to really make sure that we're utilizing some of these communication techniques? So one of the first things is kind of analyzing your emotional intelligence. So one of the things that I talked about was really looking into that either emotional intelligence 2.0 book. Um, if you've taken a personality exam, I know that's also a big thing now. The Myers-Briggs, the Enneagrams, 
kind of using those particular tools to see where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, not really living and dying by what number you are, what four letters you are, but just seeing kind of how you are at that particular point in time, journaling, meditation, all these things help benefit you in terms of recognizing your emotional, uh, where you are at, uh, with emotional intelligence. The second yeah. thing is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say, I, I highly recommend, you know, looking up your daily horoscope. I mean, that's basically how I de- determine whether, what my mood's going to be like that day. So yeah, def- definitely absolutely. check that out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you have a good horoscopist? Is there someone that you go to? You know, I just Google horoscope for the day and whatever comes up first, that's what I go with. I'm an Aquarius. So, yeah. There you go. Um, All right, continue, continue with the more relevant topics. <laughs> yeah. So the, the second thing that you can do as well, and it's really painful, but it's probably one of the best things that you can do is record yourself. So whether that means getting an audio recording or even better, a video recording, of yourself. So that way you can see exactly how your body language is, how you're talking to your patient. And then you can also see in real time and even in slow-mo to a painstaking degree, how the patient is uh, reacting to what you're telling them. And one of the things that I, it's, it's like a weird hobby for me, but it's actually analyzing people's faces and emotions. And there's really great research by Paul Eekman and Dr. Matsumoto of San Francisco. And they've done a lot of research with the FBI, with the CIA, in terms of being able to detect certain um, facial expressions, body language, to see if it matches exactly what they're saying, which, you know, we don't have to be experts in that. But I think it's really interesting to see if the patient is reacting to the information that you're giving them. You know, if you feel super satisfied that you gave them this whole big spiel about, you know, whatever they're, you felt like they benefit in terms of education and they're like rolling their eyes or their arms are crossed or they're looking away or their face is more fearful than it is kind of hopeful or happy. Uh, seeing those things in addition to what you're saying and how you're saying it to the patient can be really valuable in terms of how you're learning from that patient. And then also really critically analyzing that video. So that particular video, or even asking friends and family, like, hey, do you feel like I'm this particular way? Or like, how do you feel I am as a communicator? It may be actually really refreshing to hear that from someone that, you know, may have been a little bit hesitant to tell you that, you know, you're, you're actually pretty aggressive, or, you know, I feel like you know more than you think you do. So you can definitely get a little bit more confident in this area. And at that point, you're talking to someone that you really value their opinion and it really helps boost you along your way to be a better communicator. Yeah, I think that's that's a valid point right there where we want either, if we're someone that you know needs, I think it's like a spectrum, right? Like your confidence, like you, you're either someone that is probably you know, a little, probably a little more aggressive and you're probably a little bit more overconfident and you need to dial it back a little bit so that, you know, you, you aren't talking at patients or if you're someone that's very passive. And I think that's kind of where like new grads fall, uh, where they don't have that confidence yet. And you need to be like, Hey, like, you know, more than you think you do, you know, you definitely know more than the patient, you know, you need to, you know, kind of step it up a little bit and, and be confident and, and talk with, some assertiveness so that way the patient believes in what you're saying 
because like you said earlier, you know, patients can see right through you, but they can also, if, if you're too confident, especially in healthcare where everything is, it's not black and white, it's more gray. If I had a provider that was super confident in what they were saying and like talking at me, I'm like, oh, it's definitely this. Uh, and, you know, to your point earlier where you you said, you know, we don't exactly know what tissue causes which and that, I mean, those are the providers that I'd be more hesitant to see myself. And so Dave, to kind of summarize what we've been talking about, what are some things that you think are some key takeaways to wrap things up? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So just to overall uh, summarize, make sure that you're spending the time to, to do the research, really taking the time to dive into anatomy and research to know what you're talking about. And if you don't be honest with the patient, do things to develop trust, really build rapport, warmth, the quality, try those things like having conversations outside of their diagnosis and really dive into the, who that person is develop empathy. So really analyze yourself and see how can I be better at detecting my emotions and other people's emotions and managing both of those aspects and really taking time to listen to your patient. So get comfortable with the silence, get comfortable, really taking the time to, to listen to your patient and not jump to conclusions or jump to judgment, but really hear what they're saying. And then doing things like recording yourself, taking certain personality tests, or even asking friends and, and family, how effective of a communicator do you think you are? I think all of those things are really going to help make our profession uh, better at communicating, not just to our patients, but our coworkers, our management and, and our loved ones. Dave, I think this is, those are all great points. There's a lot of continued education to improve your clinical skills, but there's not much on trying to improve your soft skills. And so I think this brings that kind of the forefront that, you know, there's a side of PT that's kind of more like an art where you really need to work on it. And it's not things that you learned in PT school. So Dave, if anyone wants to reach out to you, what would be a good way for them to contact you? I am mediocre at social media, but uh, I am on my Instagram. My handle's at Dave Fink DPT. My email is David period Finkelstein 9 at gmail.com. If that is too long for you, then I'm sure you can add my uh, last name <laughs> to the uh, show notes. So that way uh, people can see how it's spelled. <laughs> Yeah, Dave, I think you're someone that is well-experienced and you've been all throughout the country practicing. And so I hope that this kind of reaches a lot of people because I think you have a lot of insight that people can learn from. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Nate. You know, I, I really value your your clinical expertise, your your friendship, and your how much stock you put into horoscopes. Thank you for listening to the Cross Talk Podcast. The music was produced by Scott Holmes. I'm your host, Nate Reynolds. You can find more great content on the energy.health Instagram and also on my website, energyhealth.fit. Until next time, continue to prioritize your health.